And it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Barry Sinerva is a field biologist. He studies lizards in the hills of central California. And over 20 years of watching them, he's seen them do some pretty amusing things. So this is really hysterically funny. Before you get good at catching them with a noose and, and the like, you could catch them this way. And this, this I discovered. So they have their hole, right? So I learned that if you snuck up, you didn't have to catch the lizard. You could plug their hole. And then when the lizard would run to its hole, he would hit the plug. And then you'd think, okay, that's it. He's going to run somewhere else. They would actually run back to where they were and then jam back and hit the hole again and do that again and again and again because they're just not flexible at all. (laughs) They don't learn very quickly. And watching this lizard go through this little loop, infinite little play loop, and then you just reach over. Finally, they get so tired that they just reach over and pick them up. So that's like one of those ludicrous things that you imagine they could get out of, but they can't. And that, folks, is the beauty of lizards. They stick to the script. And when I say script, I mean genes, their genetic program. See, a lot of the time when you watch lizards at work or at play, in some sense you are watching genes in action. Watch them long enough, and you can see evolution unfold before your very eyes, which, if you happen to be an evolutionary biologist like Barry Sinervo, is a pretty wonderful thing. Well, today we're going to hear some of what he's learned from lizards about social patterns in nature and the deep evolutionary principles behind them. We'll also hear about a branch of mathematics called game theory. Barry Sinervo and his colleagues are using game theory to decode some odd lizard behaviors, like a long-running contest among three kinds of lizards that resembles an endless game of rock-paper-scissors. It's a fascinating story, and it's also pretty funny, since there's something just comical about lizards. But before we laugh too much at their expense... Barry Sinerva would like to remind us that some of the same principles apply to human society, and we don't always conduct ourselves any better than lizards. So, like all good animal stories, this one has a moral to it. Now off to see the lizards with evolutionary biologist Barry Sinervo. Now, now you have a backpack sitting next to you in the studio, and uh, I am very curious to know what you brought along for this. I brought some of my friends. The lizards. You have a little what looks like a yogurt container with some uh, breathing holes in the top. Yeah. And Just you are wrestling. Little, I'm wrestling one of the lizards. <laughs> so this is a little female. Oh, she's about, uh, what, six inches from snout to tail? Yeah. She's pretty small, but you can see her side blotch. Side blotch lizard. That's yeah. this variety. Yeah. And she does have a blotch. And otherwise, the kind of familiar alligator pattern on the back. Yep. And then... Uh, this one is probably a blue-yellow, because you can see the light blue. You're looking at her chin. Yeah, her throat right her there. Her throat, and uh, she has a little bit of coloration there. Yeah, she's starting up her color, because she just came out of hibernation. This is one of our lab pets, because <laughs> we keep them around just for interviews like this. So, so we have them, and I'll pull out a male that has a nice blue throat. Blue. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's pretty much solid blue. Uh-huh. And you can see that he's also much larger. Uh-huh. So yeah. ma- males fight, and females produce eggs and defend little territories, but they don't fight as much as males, so that's why they're bigger. I've been uh, watching some of the videos on your Lizardland website, which uh, folks in the listening audience can Google, look up Lizardland, and 
I believe they'll be taken right to your site. And uh, it seems like the males do a lot of fighting and a lot of push-ups. Yeah, so they're they're constantly, you know, they're they're kind of butting heads, but they don't want to like tear into each other. So they're push-upping actually to figure out who's toughest. <laughs> and so whoever tires out, I had a student who worked on this problem. Whoever starts to tire out while they're doing push-ups, the other one will detect that and come in and attack. Oh, my <laughs> so, God. So the push-ups are actually supposedly an honest signal of how good you are and how high your stamina is, right? And so they do that probably specifically so that they can either avoid battle or they detect that they're strong enough. They'll go in and launch an attack. Not at all in, like, uh, a prison yard. Yeah, so it's it's all about <laughs> signaling whether you're weak or strong. Well, we just started talking about um, competition and strategies, and that's going to be what a large part of this interview is about. But before we go there, I want to know a little bit more about your life with lizards. You started studying them in 1989, is that right? These lizards I started studying in 1989. I started studying lizards in 1984, and that was a different group of lizards that you actually find around this area in Santa Cruz. They're the fence lizards. Mm -hmm. But they live a long time, and so they are much harder to study. If you want to study evolution, you want to see it happen fast. The lizards that I now work on that I started studying in 1989 live one year, and then they're dead because of predators and fighting. And, and then the new generation is born the next year. So mm. it's actually ideal to study natural selection because it happens so quickly, mm -hmm. one generation to maturity. So 1989, you take up your uh, now two decades long work with the uh, side blotch lizard. These are the guys we were just looking at. And whereabouts do you, do you study them? So these are just over the hill. Um, you go over the coast range and uh, you get to Los Baños. And uh, they're up south of the San Luis Reservoir. So there's some really wonderful cattle ranchers that have let me work on their land for years and years and years. And so uh, they, you know, are kind enough to give me the code to the gate. And I've been opening that gate for uh, 22 years now. You're sort of the um, Jane Goodall of uh, side blotch lizards? Yeah, you could say that. You know, uh, you sit around looking at something for a long time. You start to understand even what they say, like Jane Goodall understands even the language that uh, chimps speak. Do they revere you like a god, these lizards? Uh, no. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's kind of like a truce. I catch them. I have to catch everybody. And then after a couple of days, they start feeling comfortable with me again. So literally, I can move in amongst them, and they just, you know, kind of ignore me. So I think they really treat me like a cow. <laughs> Let's get into the color scheme and these personality types that you've focused so much of your research on. When you were describing the, uh, the lizards you brought along today, you, you mentioned that uh, a couple of them have sort of blue throats. So as I understand it, um, male lizards or maybe mature male lizards come in basically three three types? Yeah. So the lizards come in three colors or flavors. You know, they're like orange, blue, or yellow. And uh, if you pick up a lizard and you flip it over and look at its throat and it's orange, you know that they're aggressive. If you pick up a lizard and you flip it over and you, know, you see that they're just solid blue, you actually know that they're cooperative. And if you pick up a lizard that's male and it's uh, yellow-throated, you know that they're actually, a, what, what's really interesting about them is that they're a female mimic. So they pretend to be a female. And, and, female uh, impersonator. They're a female impersonator. <laughs> that's their profession. <laughs> <laughs> but they aren't gay. No, they're just like, that's just their strategy, right? <laughs> because the males are so bent on getting copulations 
that the one of the simple ways to move around is to pretend that you're female, and when males solicit copulations, you say, no, thank you, I'm not interested right now. And you make your way to the females. You go to the, the females, the big harems. Uh -huh. And so who controls the big harems? Well, it's these big, aggressive males, right? It's like if you go to the, if you go to Onion Nuevo and you see the elephant seals, these enormous males. Well, they're just like controlling this huge harem. Well, that's what the orange males do. They have many females on their territory. So the sneaker males, these yellow males, target the orange males because they're just this flaming orange color on the rock. They know exactly where they are. They go over there and they'll copulate with the females on the orange male's territory. But because they sort of look like a female, they get past the guards. They do, and even if they're confronted, like you can go onto my website and see the behaviors that they use, the sneaker male will actually bob just like a female and go, no thanks, I'm not interested today. Thank, thank you very much, but maybe in the future. <laughs> I swear this was the plot of a Dean Martin movie or something like that <laughs> some years ago. Into the harem, dressed as a female. Um, so sorting this out, you know, we've got three types of males, right? We've got the orange guys who are big and tough, right? Yeah. Might makes right. Yeah. Orange bullies. Yep. We've got the blue guys who, and we're talking chin color now, or, or throat color. The blue guys who you said were cooperative? Yeah. What, what's that mean? So a really successful blue needs a buddy, like a wingman, somebody they can trust. And it's not one of the other color types, right? He has to be true blue. He has to have the same blue. So they look for another male that's blue, and then they can kind of trust them because they are much less aggressive to one another, and they bob to one another every day, like they walk up to each other like endlessly, and they go, hey, Bob, how's it going? Fine, Bob, how are you doing? <laughs> oh, I'm doing fine, Bob. And, and uh, these guys, when they succeed, it's by cooperation. And they're team players? That's right, and if they don't get a team, uh, buddy their actual fitness is way lower. Okay, but if they do have a buddy, they can get to the females? They actually um, have females kind of come to them. They're, uh -huh. they're actually very attractive if they have a buddy. Ah. So, so it's like to be a really successful blue, you actually want to have a, a very stable buddy because the females notice that. So they display to one another, and by doing that, the females get to know that these two guys are really cooperative. And... And they might actually benefit from mating with those cooperative males because they'll produce really cooperative sons. And that strategy then is perpetuated because it tends to breed really true, not just for the color, but also the behaviors that make them really cooperative. Ah. So again, uh, the three types we have now are the orange bully, the uh, true blues, and the sneaky yellow bastards. <laughs> <laughs> There's even a more colorful description that's used in some behavioral ecology textbooks that I can't use you can't over the use? years. Go ahead, or, say it. Sneaky f***er. Excuse me? Sneaky f***er is a term used in the technical literature? Yeah, because that's what they... They live to get copulations. <laughs> so... Their strategy is to be sneaky at getting copulations. <laughs> so technically, that's their, that's their role. I don't want to remind listeners that um, they can see some of this in action because, Barry, you have some, some good uh, videos on the Lizardland website. One of them that I, I believe was directed by uh, Quentin Tarantino, uh, judging from the amount of violence in it and the, the humor mixed with violence and the uh, surf rock music. Well, <laughs> 
the the lizards are are very ninja and violent in the way they act. And so the stuff you see on the video uh, on the website is actually sort of natural history moments out in the field. Yeah, watching these guys yeah. kind of do their battle. Yeah. The orange males are just ripping into other orange males all the time. Uh huh. And the yellow guys are sneaking past the orange males. That's right. And it's, getting to the boudoir. That's right. Except. If there are blue males around, the blue males are constantly on guard for both the oranges and the yellows. And they know that they're not female. Uh, they're not females, right? For some reason, we don't still understand this. The blue males can detect that they are a male. Mm -hmm. And so it has something to do, we think, actually, with just the raw perception of the lizards. It's actually fairly well known that testosterone itself, which the orange males have in abundance, mm -hmm. actually alters perception. Mm -hmm. So it might actually make the orange males, we think, nearsighted, so that when they come up to one of these sneaker males, they kind of go, okay, that's, uh, I'll see you later. Um, they'll believe the, the sneaker male bobs. Wow. So, so working this out, we've got the orange bullies who can beat up the true blue guys. Yeah but are tricked by the sneaky yellow bastards. That's right. And the blue guys trump the sneaky guys because they're perceptive enough and keep them away from the females. Yeah. So blue beats yellow, yellow beats orange, and orange beats blue. Right. Right? That's it. And actually, when my colleague and I, Kurt Lively, discovered that there were these three things that beat each other in a, a little circle like that, that's the rock-paper-scissors game. Because rock beats scissors, but rock is beaten by paper. And then paper is, in turn, beaten by scissors. So it's like that rock-paper-scissors cycle is embodied in these lizards. And this becomes more, even more scientific-sounding when you apply what's known as game theory, mathematics that have been worked out to uh, describe how competitive games and strategies you know, can be systematized. Oh, yeah. So it's all very mathematical in a sense that once you know, the three strategies evolve, it turns out they must be the rock-paper-scissors game. That's the only s game that has three stable s strategies in one place. Um, and, and it turns out that... The mathematics describes these cycles beautifully. You know, mm. so when, when my colleague Kurt Lively and I were actually working on the game, we knew the patterns in the natural history, but we were actually writing equations to describe it. Mm. And we wrote equations for the rock, paper, scissors game. And it's a, it's actually a very famous game in, in this branch of, um, economics and evolutionary biology called game theory. Anybody working like in economics kind of knows the rock, paper, scissors game, largely because economics has game theory as a very important part of the theory. Right. It was applied first to, to economics before it was applied to biology, as I understand it. Yeah, so that's what's really interesting. Um, when I teach game theory up at UCSC, um, the history of game theory is really interesting. You know, John Nash kind of came up with kind of the core ideas that we now call the Nash equilibrium, which is the, the idea that, you know, you settle on an equilibrium that involves kind of rationality. And you, you would s say, take this strategy over another because you cannot gain by switching, basically, strategies. That's the idea of a Nash equilibrium. You mentioned John Nash. He's the mathematician who was played by, I think, Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, in the movie exactly. A Beautiful Mind. Uh, and he was famous for his contributions to game theory. Yeah. So this was back in the 50s that Nash wrote his Ph.D. thesis mm -hmm. and then the papers that came out of it. Years later, in the 1970s, um, two evolutionary biologists, George Price and John Maynard Smith, actually realized the importance of an idea that George Price had come up with about that was very much like John Nash's ideas, except they applied it in a biological vein, and it was really independent of 
the economic development of game theory. And that, w- that became evolutionary game theory. Mm-hmm. And um, it's basically only different in that economic game theory involves ideas of rationality and what humans do because we can think through the process. Evolutionary game theory is kind of the mathematics of how genes transmit through the generations. It's very similar to rationality, but with a twist. Mm. You know, it's, it's just kind of driven mm. by this mathematical process mm. and not really having to think through it hard, not learning and not adapting and the like. So when, when we teach game theory, you know, it's great because Dan Friedman, my colleague, is the economics guru, and I do the evolutionary game theory, and, and kind of we merge those two views. Mm. Mm. You said economics, uh, you know, presupposes sort of rational actors all trying to get an advantage in the uh, capitalist system, whereas um, evolutionary theory really breaks it down to a contest between genes, right? Genes, yeah. Right. If genes do well, then they propagate. Uh, if they don't do well, they die out or diminish in number. So this game theory applied to, for instance, this rock paper scissors game that the lizards play is really looking at how genes, you know, either take advantage of a situation or don't, right? That's right. Now, when you and I play rock, paper, scissors, why don't we do it right now? Sure. Okay. Oh. Uh, too bad, man. You got rock, I, I got I scissors. Could, I looked at you and I could tell you were scissors. <laughs> <laughs> Co-op- cooperator, though, so that's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly where I wanted to go. Well, we play that game. We're, we're doing two things. We're either randomly coming up with rock, paper, or scissors, and it's pure luck of the draw. Or we're trying to intuit what the other guy's going to do and yeah. basing our move on that. We might the see patterns. There's the a psychology. You, yeah. s- you thought I was a scissors type. I don't know why, and I won't ask why. But uh, you might, if we played enough, see that I always go for scissors after I do rock or something like yeah. that. Well, these lizards, though, help us understand how they play this game. Am I born an orange lizard, or am I born a blue lizard, or am I born a yellow lizard, and that's that? That's it. You're destined to be this type because of your genes. And what makes it very easy to model mathematically is it's just these random collisions and probabilities, right? So that when, you know, orange is very rare, it's actually very good to be orange, right? Because you're not going to be running into other oranges that you kind of can't beat. And you would ah. actually do really well against a different strategy, which is probably now common. The scissors uh-huh. strategy is common. The scissors strategy. Yeah. Meaning? The blue male strategy. The blue right? male strategy. So the aggressive oranges would beat the blues. Rock would beat scissors. And in the next generation, that it's that fast. The genes for that strategy would build to a higher frequency. And then what strategy wins? Okay, let's, let's stop right there and let's, let's retrace this. So I'm an orange lizard, big and tough, born into a blue world. Yes. Where there are a lot of weaker guys who like to cooperate. I go in and I bust some heads, get some lady lizards, and after a while, it's an orange world. It's an orange world. Within two generations. Within it's two actually, generations, it's, it's that an orange world. And then what happens? Then, of course, there are still some yellows, right? Always a few yellows. And the yellows now make hay because there's two oranges kind of butting heads against one another, and the yellows kind of run through their little harem, and actually one male will copulate with every single female on the orange male's territory. And lo and behold, within a generation or two, a lot of yellow lizards. That's right. And guess who then comes into the picture? <laughs> then what happens is that the because the orange now has been kind of brought 
down in frequency, right? Lower, lower numbers of them, the blues can do well. And the cooperative blue males, the ones that can find a true blue buddy, can completely shut out the yellows. They, the yellows get absolutely no fitness, so they only are getting a little bit of fitness where there are residual orange holdouts, and the blues shoot up in frequency. And on and on it goes, the merry-go-round. That's right. Now, now, here's where it's really simple. Just think about this. This, game, this cycle goes on and on. It goes up and down with blues, up and down with yellows, up and down. So if you were a female lizard, shouldn't you actually take advantage of the cycle? I was going to ask about the females. Do they simply mate with whoever, you know... Whichever male wins uh, the In competition. In the next generation. Yeah. So they'll mate with the rare types and produce rare sons that then are winning in the rock, paper, scissors game. So actually what's really interesting is that the cycle is actually accelerated by these kind of like economic bets that the female is making. The female discriminates yeah. and says this unusual guy is more interesting yeah so they they'll actually they're they're designed to detect their social environment and what's common in the environment and they actually change their preferences so you could be orange an orange female and go i don't really want to mate with an orange this year cuz there's just nothing but orange males around me so they go with the rare thing so it's a bit of fashion right <laughs> so wow. they go with the rare thing it's just really simple mate with the rare thing Mm. And you will actually produce rare sons that do well in the game. So the the odd the oddball uh, gets the prize. Yeah, that's right. Wow, how nice! That's and it, but three I different oddballs in a row. <laughs> <laughs> so it's only transient. You got to be like, you know, the next year you're not the oddball, right? You you're the common type because you, you're successful. Um, now, this has, you know, some real implications for evolutionary theory, and I want to talk a little bit more about those. But before we go on, I want to understand one thing. The, the combination of color, you know, the color of the chin, and these personality traits and physical traits, these aren't all controlled by one gene. I mean, you don't have a gene that makes you blue and cooperative at the same time, do you? Well, it's, it's kind of funny. Our most likely candidate is that there's a super gene. Often you get things bundled together as a gene complex that do many things, one of which is the signal, which is the bright color. There's probably genes for that signal, and we actually know kind of what the biochemistry of the colors are. Yeah. Then the genes themselves do really interesting things. So what makes it really general is that the genes actually work on the endocrine system. And so we know that orange males have high testosterone. Well, that's the same reason why, you know, humans are aggressive. Males are aggressive, perhaps, because they uh, might have very high uh. testosterone. But when, one way to really think about it is we think about there being like a major set of genes, one for the signal color and then another gene for causing these really interesting differences in the hormone system, which cause then downstream effects on many other parts of the, mm -hmm. the genome. Mm -hmm. So it's like a super gene. So it's multiple genes that are very close together on the chromosome. Okay, so the fact that they're close together on the chromosome, that means that they might be inherited together That's rather right. than breaking up and you getting all kinds of admixtures of these characteristics, orange cooperative, yellow bully, yeah. you know, testosterone laden. Yeah. You don't tend to get those. These things tend to cling together. Actually, yeah? well, we know that um, <laughs> there's the major gene for color, but we actually, in one of our papers, we mapped other genes that make you kind of prefer, say, blue males, those can kind of form admixtures, right? So you can, we followed orange males that were carrying kind of the wrong set, right? They were carrying genes for being cooperative. Say. Well, that sounds like the uh, the nuclear option, man. 
uh, big, rough, and tough, and cooperative, they'd kill everybody, no. right? No. no, because when they come up against an orange, the other orange annihilates them, right? Because they're just programmed to be aggressive right ah. from the start. So you can't carry around mixtures of these things very ah. well. So you actually have to be pure for each strategy to be the uber lizard, right? You know, ah. the, the one of the, the orange male that is super aggressive is always favored for aggression. Okay. And blue males are always favored for many genes in the genome that are cooperative. And sneakers are favored for many genes in the genome that make them look even more perfect female mimicking. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the... Uh one of the things that uh, perplexes people who haven't studied evolutionary theory a lot, you know, and simply come at it as a layperson and say, how did, uh, you know, random variation and natural selection produce these amazingly complex forms? You know, this has led to some doubt among people who are not scientists. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you're describing a way in which uh, a selection process can cause traits to sort of aggregate together and stick together. That's right. Which gives you a complicated sort of structure to build on. It's it's an emergent property. Yeah. That's exactly it. So let's just think about cooperation because that's really easy to think about. So if you carry this blue color and then imagine that you also carry a, at another gene in the genome just a preference for blue color, right? So you just want to go to next to other individuals that have the blue color. That's like what we call a self-preference. Mm -hmm. Well, who are you going to find? You're actually going to find another male or female that has the blue color and that also shares that allele with incredible fidelity, right? Because you, it's like you're a s mutually seeking missiles. You end up next to each other. And imagine just this simple thing that you don't get along. Well, what if there's another pair over here that really get along? Uh -huh. They also have yet another third factor that they're more cooperative. Right. Then instantly you started a gene set of that that works really well together. And mm. that's essentially what mm. the the cooperative genes mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. And that's general for all mm -hmm. animals actually. Mm -hmm. So the the lizards are a really useful model for mm -hmm. the evolution of cooperation mm -hmm. that comes about by this gluing process that behaviors have. That's yeah. kind of the key to understanding the evolution of behaviors. Got it. So when you try to break up this set, when you try to wear checks and stripes together, it doesn't work. The gene, you know, that lineage dies out. That's right. In an instant, we watched it. We watched them die out. Let's say your mother was blue and your father was orange. If you have all these cooperative genes that are pushing you one way and the other aggressive genes pulling you the other way, it's not necessarily a good thing. Mm. And so those are constantly being purged by selection, whereas these other more pure types are being the ones that are favored because they win in this rock-paper-scissors mm. dynamic. Well, you know, I was going to ask, uh, couldn't a combination arise that gets you off the merry-go-round, that uh, trumps these three standard types? And you're, you're describing a way in which, no, you really can't. Well, <laughs> the little twist on this is that, you know, they're not like a solid genome, right? What we found in this latest paper that Ammon's uh, the lead author on, my student Ammon Coral, um, he found that this system actually has a striking tendency to start to want to speciate. It's uh, oh. because it it's like it's there's no want in some sense. It's just that it it will. It's an emergent property again. Mm -hmm. Think about the blues. It's really easy to think about that strategy. Again, I want to remind listeners we're talking about lizards when we say the blues. This type the of blues, yeah. yeah. So the blue males, they they actually want to aggregate together. Well, what if females have that same aggregation tendency, blue females? Yeah. You can actually instantly set up a little 
enclave of them, and we've actually found now that there are actually huge colonies of blue males and females, and that can actually grow in size. And eventually it can completely shut out one of the strategies. And which strategy would they shut out? The yellows. And so what we Ammon found is that the yellow allele is often over evolutionary time, right? And I'll, we can talk about how deep evolutionary time is. It is ejected from the game. And the remaining two strategies, blue and orange, crystallize on an entirely new mating system that's not the rock-paper-scissors game, but some other interesting game. And the genes change rapidly, and they become so different that they become on their way to becoming a new species. Ah, well, we'll talk a little bit more about speciation and why that's important to evolutionary theory in a moment, but just a little bit more about the rock-paper-scissors game, this orange-yellow-blue, orange-yellow-blue alternating pattern through through history. Yeah. How far back does this go, do you think? I mean, you've discovered it. You were the guys yeah. who discovered it in the side blotch lizard yeah. here in California. Is it common? Does it happen everywhere among these lizards? Ha does it have a history? Yeah. So what Ammon did in his paper, Ammon Coral did in his paper, was he drew up like a family tree for all the different populations of the side blotch lizard. And so just imagine like you have a genealogy, but except this one goes deep in evolutionary time. It actually goes back almost 15 million years according to the genes and how the genes tell us how old this is. So we have some populations where the rock-paper-scissors game has literally cycled for 15 million years. And if you think... And you found this through DNA analysis? Yeah, DNA analysis. Just help us understand how you can take the DNA from contemporary lizards and yeah. tell us that they have been playing this orange-yellow-blue game yeah. for millions of years. So, so what you do is you drop this family tree, and it's kind of like, you know, there are these ideas where humans came from, right? Mm -hmm. We know there's an idea that we all came from Africa, out of Africa, because the deepest deepest, deepest branches of the evolutionary tree for humans dip into Africa. Right. It's just like that with lizards. The deepest branches that we have are all rock, paper, scissors. What you're saying is that if you follow that family tree back using this kind of analysis, you find that there are three types even back then. Yes. So that tells you that the game was being played yeah. back then. Yeah. And related work, I went to Europe to study the European common lizard, right? And we discovered the same colors there. Now, the family tree for lizards, they're in two different families, actually, which is a big biological unit of organization, right? You have families, genera, and then species. Mm -hmm. So this is a big difference. Those lizards in Europe separated from the, Euro the North American lizards, they're very different. In fact, these two lizards are, one of the European lizards are more closely related to snakes than the ones here in North America. 175 million years ago. Wow. Which is intriguing because it says yeah. either the game is that old or it evolves very stably over evolutionary time in two deeply divergent lineages. You spent uh, some years, I guess, in the uh, French Pyrenees studying yeah. these, these European lizards? Yeah, so the rock, paper, scissors game is nothing that you see right away, right? You have to see the cycles. And so we did see the cycles, and we published this paper. I thought, actually, when I went to the French um, Pyrenees, I thought it would take me probably 10 years or more because these lizards there don't live like a single um, year and then they die. They're actually quite long-lived. What was really interesting is that we saw the cycle really quickly, and that actually told us a lot about how the cycle works. Hmm. And you're tuned to KUSP Central Coast Public Radio. 
This is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly, and I'm joined today by evolutionary biologist Barry Sinervo. We're talking about the origins of social behavior, mostly in lizards, but also other creatures, including Homo sapiens. And uh, before we go on, just a couple of explanations here. I hope it was clear from what Barry Sinervo and I said that a supergene is not a single gene, but rather multiple genes that all affect a complex trait and tend to be inherited together. Also, a word uh, that you'll hear Barry use from time to time in this interview. Alleles. That's the word, alleles. See, genes come in different versions, and those versions are called alleles. So, for instance, uh, we have a gene for eye color that can come in a blue allele for blue eyes or a brown allele for brown eyes, etc. Now back to the interview. You and your group are the ones who discovered, first of all, that these side blotch lizards come in three varieties, yeah? Yeah. And then that these three varieties alternate in this rock, paper, scissors game that you just described. Yeah. That must have been really exciting. It was. Um, I mean, when we discovered the rock, paper, scissors game, it was like, it's it's kind of an interesting story. Cause and you knew it had some history in game theory. Not at that point. Oh, I, you didn't? We did. We did. Oh. When I was meeting with my colleague, Kurt Lively, at uh, Indiana University, that's where I was a professor before University of California, Santa Cruz, we'd meet for coffee because I told Kurt I had this really cool natural history observations in these colors, and uh, let's just meet for coffee once a week and see if we can figure this out. So we we work out some equations and scratch them down. And then about two or three weeks into this, we actually read out some equations and we both realized almost instantly. And so I had lived in California for a long time and I was pining to get back. And Kurt had actually grown up in California. We turned to each other and we went, dude, literally like twins, it's the rock, paper, scissors game. And you derived this from the mathematics. Yeah. What was this math you were doing? It's game theory. So it's this branch of, of math used for figuring out social interactions, right? And uh, the evolutionary dynamics of social interactions. Uh-huh. And so I said, Maynard Smith wrote about this, and Kurt knew that, of course. These theorists. And, yeah, and we reached ago. up and pulled from my, my bookshelf Maynard Smith's book, Evolutionary Game Theory. We flipped through it, and you can read it. And he, he says, uh, there's a really curious game, the children's rock, paper, scissors game. He calls it... Uh, he reverses it a little. I think he calls it rock, scissors, paper, or something <laughs> like that. And uh, he says it's very interesting, but we know of no biological examples of this game. So this was literally the first biological example of Confirmation. it. Confirmation. Now, I would preface this by noting that many other people had actually seen the wild colors of the lizards. Mm-hmm. But it was very difficult. Nobody could make sense of it at that point. Mm. The only way to make sense of it is with the rock, paper, scissors game. And all you do is you write out the equations and you go, this is indeed the the game. And what was really interesting, we sent our paper in because we knew it was like, you know, this was like a major puzzle to have figured out. And Maynard Smith was still active in game theory and he reviewed it. And, and it was one of the greatest reviews I've ever received on a paper, he just said. The theoretical possibility of the rock, paper, scissors game has been known for quite some time. This is an important paper. You should publish it. And it was just like he he had discovered mm. through his own theory mm. this before us, right? You know, yeah. a theorist, you know, thinking, you know, maybe with a pen and paper – uh, comes up with an idea, and then a, a, a uh, experimentalist or a field researcher like you confirms it. You know that's how science sometimes works, and yeah, when it does, it. it's pretty magical. It is. So, that's the magic of science. Yeah. So was so was uh, John Maynard Smith excited? Did you talk to him? Oh yeah. 
I mean, I have a quote I can read to you. Great. Why don't you, you read it for us? So this is um, John Maynard Smith was um, talking to a very famous game theorist, Carl Sigmund, who wrote this about um, John Maynard Smith when he died. I well remember how enthusiastically he greeted the discovery that male lizards of the species Uta Stansburyana were engaged in a game with rock-paper-scissors structure. They have read my book. <laughs> Did you meet him? Yeah, I met him uh, early before we discovered the game, actually, at an evolution meetings. And he was just a charming gentleman. But after, the, after your discovery? Ne no, I didn't. That's oh, actually that's one bad. of those things that I really kind of regret. I never found the time to get to England to kind of go on this voyage of discovery. What's really kind of interesting is that... Because uh, John Maynard Smith was English. He was English. And, yeah. and um, I was actually writing away to graduate schools to find a place to study. And I wrote... Um, some fellowships to go to England, and I was accepted to study in John Maynard Smith's lab. Where was that? That was in Sussex, in England. Mm -hmm. So it, was, it, it looked pretty idyllic. But I was also accepted to work in the lab of another population geneticist. So there's there's actually two branches of evolution, right? There's the population geneticists, and there's the game theorists. Only two. Well, this is the for the modeling the evolutionary process, mm -hmm. right? They're very different branches because mm -hmm. one is right down to the nuts and bolts of genes and alleles. Mm. And what I wanted to do was both, but um, in some sense I had to choose. And so I chose for the nuts and bolts math mm. of it, mm. which is kind of good because I would never have discovered the rock-paper-scissors game if I'd have gone straight to work with John Maynard Smith because it was, it was happenstance, right? I had to start by chance working on lizards, which was something I did when I was a student at University of Washington mm. because my major professor there moved to Berkeley. And so I worked out projects and picked up with another new professor there, Raymond Huey. And Ray Huey specializes on lizards. And I thought, okay, these lizards are great for measuring natural selection. And I went and I found ultimately the rock, paper, scissors game. But I'd always been an incredible fan of, of game theory and, and Maynard Smith's work. So then it was beautiful because I could fuse the two, both population genetics and game theory. And that's essentially what we do now. We work on these kind of hybrid models of, of evolutionary games that involve real genes kind of bouncing around animals that have kind of cool behaviors, mm. right? Genes have behaviors mm. because they cause animals to do things that um, are beneficial right, to the right. genes propagation. We don't want to um, leave the, the, the misimpression that genes ha are intelligent actors in all of this, but statistics, that is chance, sort of determines, given you know the, the conditions that these genes arise in, whether some will multiply or die off. That's right. Genes, it turns out, aren't intelligent agents, but they are agents, right? They're like computer programs for kind of working through life, right? And so it's easy to work out the mathematics of that. And ultimately, you know, you get to intelligent agents mm. like we are. Mm. We're intelligent agents, and that's the product of that mm. long, long evolutionary history. Mm. And part of this story with the lizards is ultimately to understand what humans are, right? Because we're, we're social animals and we play social games. And one of the things we be, we're good at relative to other animals is cooperation. Mm. And so that's kind of, the, kind of the holy grail is to understand that. Now, when we think of, of um, human um, battles, human struggles, human contests, we usually think of the simple idea that there are two sides. There's two sides in the Cold War. There are two sides in a boxing match. But you're describing a three-way game. Mm -hmm. Is that more common in reality? The, it turns out 
when we published the Rock, Paper, Scissors game, people have found it all over the place. So it turns up in bacteria. There are three types. You know, there's one that produces a toxin, one that detoxifies the toxin, and one that doesn't produce a toxin, so they just grow at a higher rate, but they're susceptible to the toxin that's produced. And so that's a rock, paper, scissors game. There's an economic version of the rock, paper, scissors game, and it's actually easy to understand. Mm. And this, this humans probably play out all the time. There are people that cooperate in sort of public goods games where you're investing in a in kind of this common pool. And there are other individuals that are loners. Well, the cooperators are actually susceptible to the enemy within, the one that's the cheater strategy mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. co-ops a cooperative group for their own end. Takes advantage of their that's trust. Right. And they increase in frequency. The ones that then do better are the loner investors that aren't susceptible to this. So they don't get as much, uh -huh. but they don't get they don't get screwed over uh -huh. by their friends. That turns out to be a rock, paper, scissors dynamic. So there's some really intrinsic property of games, contests, um, competition that give rise to three-way battles. That's right. And we see it all over the place. That's right. And that's actually wow. easy to understand. It <laughs> turns out that you can imagine how games evolve, right? So there's one type, and then a new mutant evolves, uh -huh. and you get to two types. Right. Well, it turns out that the next most stable game, mathematically, from two types is three types, but it's the rock, paper, scissors. Uh-huh. And then other kinds of games, four-way, five-way, are not nearly as likely to to emerge or nearly as likely to, to continue That's right. Arise. And think about it like this. We know that what's the most stable structure, like in three-dimensional space, that, you know... A, a tripod. I, a tripod. You yeah. got it yourself. And <laughs> And it turns out that a tripod, I'm on this... I'm on this seat with four legs. My son is constantly, like, tipping it and pushing it to the <laughs> limits, and it's falling over. Well, what happens is that if you think about four things, right? Here we're at this four. Look at a square. Yeah. Well, you can actually go around it, but it's perfectly balanced. You can also shoot across it and cycle. When that happens, one player can be ejected. So mathematically, four turns out to actually be stable, but only under very special conditions. It has to be knife-edge balance. That's not true about three things if they're rock-paper-scissors. It is the rock-paper-scissors game. It just cycles. You know, it, it, it's a wonderful discovery, and I'm wondering, um, it, it probably did a lot for your career, but have the lizards ever gotten anything out of this? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they, the, the, the sad fact of it is the lizards are too busy playing the rock-paper-scissors game to, to kind of look up. They're like trapped, you know, like this that movie Groundhog Day that Bill Murray was in, right? He keeps coming back to the same point in time, and they never escape from it long enough to realize that they're just in it. That's kind of a, a bleak observation, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, it is actually. It's kind of a it's kind of funny when you when you see this acted out, like all throughout all these other dynamics, because it's very complex and so if you're embedded in it, it's very difficult to see it. But if you're an external observer, you can go Oh, look at that. That stock market. What's happening with the housing collapse? It's all these banks. They're doing all this crazy stuff. And then, you know, it might in fact have that rock, paper, scissors like dynamic. As things get really good in the stock market, that allows for cheater strategies to invade, right? Mm. Or takeover strategies mm. and then cheater strategies. Mm. So I'm trying to, you know, um, 
introduced this idea of the rock, paper, scissors game and it being the fabric of all kinds of social interactions. And it is kind of sad when you, when you watch individuals kind of going through this because there are these things that you see happening. We're, we're trapped in this game. Yeah. And there's not a way, easy way to break out of it. Yeah. Well, it's kind of cool though. We are, we do. So what's, what's really neat about humans is that they're like, they they still have rock, paper, scissors kind of nibbling away at them, but we're close to fixing for cooperation. How do you mean? So we tend to be really cooperative, right? Yeah. And um, humans in general. And so, but we have two different strategies nibbling away at the social margins. Mm-hmm. There are the aggressive types that mm-hmm. take by force. Mm-hmm. And then there are the cheater types that mm-hmm. take by deception. Mm-hmm. But most people are willing to cooperate, right? And so we're playing a rock, paper, scissors game with these two marginal types, now, these could be genes, or they could be the way people are brought up. So it doesn't have to be, you know, game theory can talk about memes, ideas, mm. and kind of cultural conventions, or genes. And so the, the, I, I like to think of it as the lizards are kind of interesting because they show that, well, at times, you know, the system can actually fix on cooperation and eject the cheater mm. strategy. Yeah, you were talking earlier about some studies done by one of your grad students um, yeah. that looks at the way the whole dynamics of this game can shift from a three-way competition to a two-way competition. That's right. uh, <clears throat> when the cooperators uh, get really numerous, right? Yeah. And they pretty much rule out the sneakers. That's who, right. You can't get past them. So you've got uh, them alternating with the, the bullies. That's right. Who can so force th- their way past So them. that's really interesting because that's a, an example of a kind of a um, kind of a bit of a runaway process, right? Because as you get more and more cooperators... The cooperators, actually, what's really interesting about them is that they can even do well against the bullies because the lizards show us kind of how this happens. The cooperators maintain the cooperation even if it costs them their lives, which is altruism. (laughs) So what this means is that when two blue males are sitting side by side, we found that when a blue, uh, an orange male comes up on a blue border and starts fighting away at the blue male, instead of just running and going and finding a new territory, the one blue male will hold his ground and, in fact, die for his buddy. And his buddy passes on genes that they share because they found each other, you know. So the genes are, in some ways, selfish because they're really just doing it to pass on the genes. But it's a way of understanding the mathematics of of altruism because humans are famous for remarkable altruistic behaviors. I want to remind uh, listeners that when we say blue and orange, we're talking about these two types of lizards that you study. Uh, The blues tend to be cooperators. The the orange tend to be big bullies who uh, rely on force. And you're saying that in this case, the blues are so cooperative, so uh, loyal to their tribe that they will die for the the cause. Um, Now, it's not really altruism, is it, in the case you described, because what's happening there is the gene is selected for because if one organism carrying this gene dies for other organisms of the same type, the gene gets to prosper, even if one organism dies in the process. Yeah? That's right. It's The it's, gene is the cause that the individual lizards are dying for. That's right. <laughs> the gene. It's a selfish gene, but it generates an emergent property that we think of as evolutionary altruism, right? Yeah. Not like 
true altruism, like Mother Teresa altruism, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. That's a very different thing. Mm. But this is a way of understanding uh, the genetic bases for other more complex kinds of altruism that can evolve. In the, in the cold-blooded world of evolutionary theory, there's no such thing as true altruism, true selflessness, is there? No, because, I mean, there has to be a genetic advantage, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what, I mean, when you talk about evolutionary game theory, it all comes down to the advantage of genes. Mm. This idea actually has a really interesting history. So it's another set of players besides John Maynard Smith who came up with this. Which, I, which idea is this? The whole idea of this genetic altruism. Uh, kin right? selection is that kin what you're selection. going? Yeah. Hamilton, W.D. Hamilton, another famous evolutionary biologist who died just um, a decade ago. He came up with this idea that you could have a gene, if it had three really interesting properties, that it signaled and that other genes with the same signal recognized themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Genes recognizing themselves. Mm -hmm. And then the third property is that they did something nice to the other individual, even if it hurt them. In other words, recognizing their own kind, carriers of this particular gene. That's right. Well, do them a favor. That's it. Gene gets to prosper. And the gene prospers. And Dawkins, another famous evolutionary biologist who popularized mm -hmm. this notion. Richard Dawkins, yeah. That's right. He called it green beard after this hypothetical human example. Imagine a population where there are these individuals that have beards of different colors and that we had one individual, say, with a green beard and another individual over here meets a green-bearded individual and they have a green beard and recognize the green beard in the other individual and then they do something nice to them even if it costs them something. Out of that example we now call it a certain thing. We call it green beard altruism. The way I like to think of it <laughs> is that if Dawkins had been prescient enough to you know, presage the blue color of the side blotch lizards. It'd be called it'd be blue beard, beard altruism. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, this uh, this this mechanism of basically um, taking care of people who carry the same gene as you, you know, is is used to explain why parents would die for their offspring. Right. You know, yeah, because because it propagates that gene. Oh no, that's that's actually true fitness. Oh, sorry. yeah. See, yeah. So that's 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 like you die for your progeny because your progeny are fitness. Yeah. But it would be like you dying for a brother, right, or a sister, because they're going to produce progeny to pass on to the next generation. Yeah. Now, this bean counting is very precise. Okay, so, so the difference you just uh, described, in both cases, the, the, the organism me, yeah. <laughs> I'm dying for a gene that I carry. In That's both right. cases, I'm dying for a gene That's right. I carry. But um, you die let's say if you if you if you're a parent and you die for your children that's your fitness right that's your direct lineage of descent mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now imagine that a brother is over, sitting over here yeah. and he's looking at making some sort of altruistic decision he has another way he can get fitness through his own progeny mm -hmm. and so he's actually sacrificing that lineage for saving you say no that makes no sense to me at all yeah, <laughs> ah, but he would be willing to do it if there were two of you that he would save, right? Because ah. you share half of your genes. Oh in, the, in the mathematics of altruism, an individual would be willing to die. And, and J.B.S. Haldane, another evolutionary theorist, theorist, expressed it like this. I would be gladly willing to sacrifice my life and fitness for two brothers, because that's the equivalent, the genetic equivalent of J.B.S. Haldane. They would share roughly uh, that amount of 
material. Uh-huh. Well, again, uh, we, we see that how just cold-blooded and calculating evolutionary theory is. No such thing as real generosity, real uh, you know, altruism. No. Always no, a no. calculation involved. Yeah. Now, now, we just talked about what was called kin selection by W.D. Hamilton. That is uh, this process by which kin can cooperate and even sacrifice for each other if the odds are good that it will propagate some gene they carry. As I understand it, your group has also discovered some quote-unquote altruism among these lizards that isn't based on kinship? Yes, we've discovered a completely um, new example of something that somebody had theorized, right? Hamilton had theorized that there is kin selection, but he also theorized that there's this other thing called green beard selection, Mm -hmm. where you don't have to be related to the individual. It could be a single gene that does it. Now... Mm -hmm. What we found is that it's a gene that does it, but it interacts with other genes in the genome. So Mm -hmm. that to make a true blue male, you need the genes for recognizing blue color and Mm -hmm. finding them and preferring to be Mm -hmm. with them, and then also doing some interesting things with them, being cooperative and Mm -hmm. maybe even self-sacrificial. So that's green beard altruism. There were no vertebrate examples of green beard altruism, like higher vertebrate examples, um, until the lizards. People had examples of this green bearded effect for ants, and um, bacteria, lots of other kinds of creatures. But now we have a biological example of green beard altruism for a vertebrate, something with mm. pretty complex behavior. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the green beard scenario, you have this, hypothetically, a single gene that has basically come up with a cool strategy yeah. for actually one-upping kin selection, you know, yeah. making you, the organism, the lizard, whatever, choose to take care of some other lizard carrying this one gene as opposed to, in some cases, some near relatives carrying a lot of other genes That's that you right. share. But, but remember, having kin is a two-edged sword. We all know that, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, you know, it turns out that kin are remarkably similar to you, right? They have mm-hmm. the same needs, wants, and desires. Mm-hmm. They're always in competition with individuals, mm. Kin are really strongly in competition with individuals. So kin cooperation is always balanced against the kin competition, sibling competition, sibling rivalry. Mm. It's a a battle. It's an Mm -hmm. ongoing battle. But green-beardedness, you know, avoids all that because you're really distributing your acts to other individuals that are unrelated to you, but only related through these selfish genes that cause you to generate mm. those those things. So mm. it gets away from all that, you know, the sibling rivalry. It mm. doesn't have that property. You mentioned that, um, you know, often there, there there's intense competition within kin groups, even though you do share a lot of your genes. Um, and, of course, that, that happens. We see that a lot in nature within species as well. I mean, birds spend all their time chirping away to warn other male birds at least to, to warn other male birds to stay away and they don't care a whit about many other species around them i mean we see this again and again and again mm-hmm. that uh like types of creatures tend to uh focus all their animosity on those closest to them that's right <laughs> because they recognize them as the immediate threat so that's same kind niche, of same that's resources right. and orange males are just like that yeah. right because they know their worst threat is orange and so they direct all their aggression to the other oranges. And that's how the sneaker males get in. Uh, There's a little crack because of that. Problem. Again, a, a lesson a lesson for human beings, certainly. Yeah. 
get them to fight among themselves. And you can you share can the spoils. You can sidestep the battle altogether and right. get to the prize. Um, one of the things you've mentioned uh, that I wanted to come back to then is, is speciation. This is the way in which new species evolve. I mean, this goes right back to the very beginnings of evolutionary theory, Darwin's famous book, The Origin of Species. Mm -hmm. Why is speciation such a big deal for you evolutionists? Why is that a problem that you're so focused on? Well, it's it's like you imagine you have this one thing, and how do you get to two things from that, like this splitting point? And so how do you get diversity? That's like kind of trying to understand the, the whole nature of evolution is understanding that splitting process. So things go along for a time. <clears throat> sometimes very long time, mm -hmm. and you have one species, but at some point something happens and it splits into two. That's right. And what's kind of new about this idea is that it's not our new idea, right? But nobody had really a good biological example of it. This is a way in which it occurs just from social forces, right? It's not the external environment. It's not what kind of seeds you feed on if you're a Darwin's finch. One species feeds on small seeds, the other spe feeds on large seeds, and eventually you get so specialized at feeding on those two kinds of seeds that you can no longer breed with the other type because you're going to produce intermediate types that can't feed on anything. That's one classic story. Another that's, one is where you have <clears throat> members of the same species who get separated geographically right. and over time diverge. That's right. Yeah, But you're talking about a group that isn't separated in any way whatsoever, right. eats the same food, does the same stuff. And yet species might emerge from? Because then they develop almost like a simple way, if you want to analogize it to what humans, they develop new conventions, social conventions, new ways of meeting, mm. right? And so blues essentially can split off and form their own little group and com completely exclude the others. Or maybe the only type that can e exist with them is the orange, mm. right? And yellow is ejected from the game. Mm -hmm. And then the whole gene complex of sociality changes in that newly forming group such that so many genes change that if they were to cross with the rock, paper, scissors types, they would actually produce fewer offspring. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could imagine, say, um, you know, cliques in, in high school uh, deciding, for instance, jocks will never, ever breed with uh, nerds, you know. And if that went on long enough, you might have two species emerge. Well, yeah, if, if like <laughs> if, if if humans behave by those social conventions, but they don't have the same the same dynamic. But but that that could actually happen at a larger level, right? It's it's possible that you see that two social groups, larger groups, right, like two dialects, just won't associate at all with another. Uh, the other dialect group, and they essentially may, in fact, develop taboos, right, mm -hmm. for even um, cross marriages mm -hmm. and the like. That starts the process, but, you know, humans tend to mix it up, so mm -hmm. there's there's enough mixtures that it would never get to that point with humans. But that, that that's an analogy that's, that holds true, because it turns out that the way in which the genes work, you know, to prefer self-similarity types, mm -hmm. well, humans are actually programmed to do that, right? Mm -hmm. We tend to actually discriminate all the time against others that have different languages or religions or whatever. So it's all about the same stuff. It's like self versus non-self preferences. But then there's a, a countervailing attraction to the exotic and the other as well. That's right. A bit like uh, you were saying with the female uh, side blotch lizards. Yeah, and that can completely swamp out any of that other stuff, right? Uh -huh. And that can have enough gene flow that you keep humans kind of homogenized. So no problem at all. But with lizards, it's possible because the self-preferences are just so strongly mm. coded genetic, right, mm. for, for self that you can get those splits. So if I understand you right, 
we're a little more flexible than lizards. That's right. Yeah. We, I mean, we have like, you know, uh, a little bit of rationality going on, a little bit of uh, creativity. You know, lizards are just coded by these genes. That's what makes it a nice, simple mm. system to study. Mm. You don't have to think too hard about, you know, somebody outthinking you in the experiment. The lizards won't do that. How many hours do you reckon you've spent in the company of lizards? Oh, I, you know, during the field season, I'm out there uh, five days a week for 30 years. So I don't know. You do the math. It's <laughs> it's thousands and thousands and thousands of hours. What do you think the the impact on your psychology is of all that time spent uh, among that species instead of your own? Well, I, I mean, I get home every night, you know, so I talk to my wife. <laughs> it's like a nine-to-five job. And so I'm, I'm not, not like – I used to camp out there, right, when I was a graduate student before I was married. So it's, uh, you can imagine you might become some sort of hermit, but nah, no. Are you fond of these, uh, these critters? Oh, yeah. It's, you know, I, I always look forward to the next year, right? It's not going to be the same old story. It's actually evolving. So I get to go out and something new will be there. What is the, the problem you'd most like to, to solve uh, by way of observing and studying these guys, these lizards? In some sense, to understand the evolution of these social systems, right? Because there, there are some lessons that can be learned, very simple lessons, right? Like if you think about humans and a lot of the problems that we have, right? It's the how we are so hardwired to prefer type and discriminate against non-self, right? So we prefer self-type, discriminate against non-self. And a lot of the root of hu the human condition is is that. And uh, if you can just back a people up. A lot of up, the root of evil. Yeah, the root of evil. Because racism and racism, so on. Racism, all of that stuff. If you can just back people up and say, look at these lizards, you know, and look at how ludicrous this is. <laughs> and then maybe they can go over here and make that analogy and go, look at this. This looks ridiculous. Why are we squabbling over something like, you know, a couple of religious types that really are, were actually derived from the same oh, golly. fundamental premises. And guess what? Premises. There's three of them, right? There's right. three Abrahamic religions, uh, <laughs> right. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just back up and say, what's going on here? We're setting up this. The system sets up all the time. Let's try to just go, that's ridiculous. How can we break it down? Let's try to destroy the notion that we only have to be altruistic to individuals that are self-similar. Just be altruistic because you're human. Well, Barry, on that note, I'd just like to thank you uh, for this lesson. And thank your lizards, you know, who <laughs> have so much to tell us. Thanks very much for having me on, Robert. Barry Sinervo is professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UC Santa Cruz and is held in awe by the side-blotch lizards of Merced County. I think they really treat me like a cow. You can find his lab on the web by Googling Lizardland, featuring videos of real lizards fighting and loving and living it up. And that does it for this week's 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week, Sunday at noon, right here on KUSP.